It's the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, April 15th. We begin with yesterday's announcement that Calgary students from grade 7 to grade 12 will move back to online learning starting on Monday. We get reaction to the decision from Support Our Students, Alberta. Would a decrease in personal income tax lead to more jobs for Canadians? We speak with Jake Foss, Senior Policy Analyst at the Fraser Institute, who believes lower taxes would create over 100,000 jobs in our country. We know him as a singer, actor, and author. We chat with Alan Doyle about his latest book, All Together Now, and hear how he's been keeping busy during the pandemic. And finally, hard to believe the Island of Brian TV show is about to kick off its third season. We talked to the show stars, Brian and Sarah Baumler, on the challenges they've faced working on an island resort and what viewers can expect from the new season. 7.09, it's Mornings with Sue and Andy. It was a sharp rise in cases among school-aged Albertans. Uh, that is uh, the cause and the effect Yesterday, we uh, did hear late afternoon that the CB and the Calgary Catholic School Divisions are sending grade 7 to 12 students back home for online learning for what they're calling at least the next two weeks. With reaction, we're joined by Medina Musa, Executive Director for Support Our Students Alberta, uh, to break down their thoughts. Good morning to you, Medina. Good morning. Thank you for taking the time with us. Um, Your reaction uh, when you heard the announcement yesterday from the organization's perspective? Well, you know, first of all, I just want to acknowledge how hard teachers and students have been working through this year of disruption and the COVID roller coaster. Um, and also, I think it's really a, a, rec- a, a recognition just that cases have clearly reached a tipping point where the constant cycles of quarantines are no longer sustainable and that schools are actually just running out of teachers and the safety concerns are really growing um, when we look at how variants have are at play now. Do we have any stats, Medina, on the number of substitute teachers who were out and and the teachers themselves? Like, do we know exactly what the, the numbers are in terms of lost time due to being sick? Um, they have, I, I think at the end of each term, the school boards will report that and they will report how many students are in isolation. I know as of two days ago, there was about 5,000, I think 4,500 CBE students and staff in isolation just currently this last week. So I think when you add that up across the entire province, it becomes quite staggering to recognize how much disruption um, has been to learning and how, how much anxiety has been um, around the ins and outs of schools going in and out of school for students. Medina, you know, uh, support our students. You guys cover the entire province. So I'm wondering, is this an issue, uh, you know, solely based in the city of Calgary or is it happening elsewhere as far as uh, some, uh, you know, circuit breaker closures of the school to move to online in other cities or or can you see that happening? Um, You know, I think we can anticipate that that might happen because all schools are under these resource shortages, right? There's been a failure to plan for that. Um, Calgary is seeing the biggest spike in cases right now, but it is a trend throughout the entire province. Um, the government did frame this as a decision by CBE and Calgary Catholic um, asking for it, um, which is the responsible decision, right, to not recognize that these kids are in crowded classrooms and teachers are with them in classrooms of 30 to 40 kids. It's essentially an indoor gathering that none of us are allowed to have. Um, they need to recognize that this is a safety issue. And I think there's a lot more concern with variants at play. 
Medina, we're running stories in our newscast this morning talking about, you know, comments from you and your organization that, you know, the government just doesn't have a plan right now. What happens after these two weeks? Your thoughts on that? Well, absolutely. You know, this is the third wave and this government is no better prepared this third time around than they were a year ago. Um, we have uh, been advocating and calling for more innovative solutions and more proactive measures to minimize disruption and to maximize safety. Safety. So even the idea of like a hybrid model, right, where we where students um, go uh, alternate days when they go into the classroom and they can actually um, socially distance and ventilation issues, rapid testing. We've been calling for that since the fall, and they're only now eight months later instituting it. So really, this government has been slow on their heels. Also, prioritizing teachers for vaccination um, is a big issue, right? I think showing some uh, some flexibility and being nimble to react to the issue and the pandemic as it's unfolding and not being stuck in a certain mindset, but being um, innovative with an approach is really important here. And students do need to be prioritized and they really haven't been. There's been a failure to plan and um, it's students who are, who are taking the brunt of that, of, of those failures, of government failures. I'm wondering, Medina, you know, uh, keeping the kids as safe as we can from uh, contracting COVID-19 is one thing. But I'm also wondering, on the other side, when it comes to health issues, the mental health of these students back again, uh, back home again. uh, What are you hearing from parents and and from your members? Oh, you're absolutely right. I think um, we, we have heard from different parents and students that the uncertainty and the lack of a roadmap provided by government to say, okay, when cases reach here at this critical point, this, you know, specifying the data that they're using to make these decisions so that there's an opportunity for students and teachers and families to plan and to know what to expect. You know, even in this uncertain times, there's still an opportunity to provide a roadmap and some sense of certainty. Um, and also to, to allow for resourcing for these students. Um, mental health has, is, I mean, we're all going through it, but you mm-hmm. think about the age groups of these kids, age 12 to 18, and that developmental stage and having to shoulder the burden of this uncertainty and is, is, is a lot, and we can't minimize it. We need to be supporting it, and we need to be doing a better job of highlighting the impacts of this roller coaster approach by this government on students. We got a text from a, a Calgary teacher, grade eight teacher, who, uh, among the things she mentioned, says a lot of the students completely check out when you're teaching them online. And she's concerned uh, that she w- believes this could potentially go beyond the two weeks that the government and AHS has talked about at this point. Will the SOS organization be pushing for it to be just two weeks? Is that just kind of depend on numbers? Or what are your thoughts moving forward? Well, I think, you know... It's, it's, it's difficult. So to, to push for just two weeks is difficult to say at this, at, at this point because we don't know what the community spread is going to be, what the numbers are going to be, what access to teachers there are going to be. But we agree that learning in the classroom is the most effective for the highest number of students and that being out of the classroom, there's going to be a lot of people left behind. So we'd also like to see more supports for students. So we'd like guarantees that each and every student has access to online learning and that they do have 
uh, a computer available to them and internet access for the school for the school boards that are transitioning. Um, and those are supports and planning that this government has failed to do. Um, we would love to have all the students in school that will take political will to invest in schools. You cannot in- expect safe, uninterrupted schools without investing and putting in place the proper defenses in this pandemic context. Marina, thank you uh, so much for your words this morning. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That is uh, Medina Musa, Executive Director for Support Our Students Alberta. Uh, finding more information online at supportourstudents.ca. Your thoughts of what's happening in your home, your kids, your grandkids uh, being sent home for two weeks, you as a parent or a grandparent, how are you feeling about it? Text lines open 403-974-8255. 609, it's mornings with Sue and Andy. And uh, can we draw a correlation between cutting income taxes and a positive growth when it comes to job creation. Well, Jake Fuss is senior policy analyst with the Fraser Institute and here to talk about a new study published today says uh, it does. You can draw somewhat of a correlation. Good morning to you, Jake. Good morning. Thanks very much for having me on. Good. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, good to have you on. Uh, let's talk about this because I, I want to know how this exactly works. Or I would think outside looking in, and you're the professional, Jake, so you got to break it down and straighten me out here, um, that if we if we were to do something like that, we might you know, maybe attract some foreign investment and, and some new jobs. But are we talking about jobs for Canadians who are, who are looking for work right now? Yes. So, you know, as as you know, thousands of Canadians have lost jobs or a portion of their income due to the COVID pandemic. Um, that's why Canada's strategy for economic recovery will be crucial in creating job opportunities and financial stability for many families. Um, and one of the ways that we can have a successful recovery is actually to reduce personal income tax rates. Um, and our research shows that this could help create about 110,000 new private sector jobs. So, Jake, can you kind of explain that for us? How does reducing the tax rate create the, the job stimulation? Yeah, absolutely. So high-income tax rates essentially reduce the after-tax income that Canadians can take home. Um, they reduce your incentives to work and discourage entrepreneurship. Um, so those are all things that hurt job creation. Um, conversely, lowering tax rates actually allows us to attract highly skilled workers, um, business investment, a lot of different things that actually help us create jobs. Um, it also encourages risk-taking and entrepreneurship, uh, which is necessary to start or grow businesses. And in doing so, it expands the job pool for people across the country. Okay, let's play devil's advocate, Jacob. Apparently, we need money in uh, those government bank accounts to, mm. to run our nation. Uh, how, do we, how do we balance that out if we're, if we're uh, taking less from the people? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, on the revenue side, um, what we consistently observe is that tax hikes on, on people typically don't raise as much revenue as you might think because people's behavior changes in response to tax increases. So there's a lot more time and money dedicated to tax planning uh, through accountants and lawyers, and governments often don't collect as much revenue. Um, but similarly, lowering taxes on, on you know, high-income earners or, or different people um, is unlikely to have a huge effect on revenues either. It is a bit of a balance equation um, in, in these situations, but um, you know the economic effect that you can actually have by lowering you know personal income tax rates can also generate economic growth. Um, and then over the long term, you might actually see uh, you know the same amount of revenue or even an increase in revenue um, depending on the effect it has on the economy. 
Jake, I know the Fraser Institute, you know, the mission is to improve the quality of life for Canadians. So do you have the ear of the prime minister? Do you know what, when you come up with these great ideas that I think a lot of people can relate to and understand and think maybe this would be a very helpful, how do you push that forward? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it's about having that, you know, discussion about job creation. You know, I think it's something that everybody recognizes is going to be a, a problem um, during the economic recovery stage. Um, we actually saw in last September's throne speech, the federal government made a commitment to create one million jobs during the recovery. Um, you know, there was limited details. Um, they, they made mention of investments in employment training, infrastructure, um, incentives for employers to hire workers. Um, and there's been some discussion about other programs as well. Um, but, you know, I would say a lot of those programs and spending initiatives are quite expensive. Um, and, you know, some of them are going to be unlikely to jumpstart the economy like some might think um, and create jobs on a huge scale. So one of the things that we're trying to do is just kind of put forward this idea about reducing personal income tax rates because um, it's been, you know, it, it has the potential to be a great solution for Canada in terms of job creation. Let's uh, let's break it down and quantify it, Jake. Uh, what percentage are we talking about when it comes to lowering those uh, personal income taxes? And is it in the direct correlation, like the more that we lower it, the, the more jobs, or is there some sort of formula? Yeah, absolutely. So um, what we see actually is that um, in our data, we have about a one percentage point cut in the top PIT rate, so the personal income tax rate. That leads to an increase um, in the employment rate by about at 0.25% in the year following the tax rate cut. So this means um, that we could create about 110,000 private sector jobs during the recovery if we lowered, you know, the top marginal PIT rate from 33% to 29%. Um, that's the rate that was prevailing during the Chrétien, Martin, and Harper tenures. Um, so it's not actually a substantial reduction in personal income tax rates. Um, it's just kind of returning to the, the norm that we've had for a couple of decades. Um, but, you know, we could see, you know, even bigger effects if, if you do reduce the personal income tax rate more. Do we have uh, some sort of a model that we would look at other nations who, who've done something like this successfully? Um, you know, or other countries looking at this as we speak? Yeah, that's, that's a, certainly a good question. You know, I would point to some of the um, recent uh, tax changes that were made um, in the United States. Um, both on the corporate income ta- side and, and as well as, um, you know, on personal income. Um, you know, there, there were uh, quite successful effects on the American economy, and some of this had spillover effects in, in Canada, too, um, you know, kind of between that 2015-2019 period. Um, so we did see the American economy doing quite well um, before the pandemic, um, largely as a result of some of the, the tax reductions that they made um, to make their economy more competitive with other countries as well. I'm wondering because the same reason we need this job creation, the pandemic, uh, might also be the reason that this looks like a, you know a real high mountain to climb at this point, Jake. In the sense that you know everybody's been hit. These programs to to help those folks who have had the job loss, they have to be funded. So you understand that this is a, a real mountain right now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's going to be a difficult challenge. I mean, you certainly need uh, emergency spending to deal with a lot of the uh, fallout from COVID. Um, But, you know, as we look towards the long term, it's going to be important to not just have, you know, sort of temporary jobs that we're creating. We want to create good, um, well-paying jobs for Canadians over the long term. Um, And, you know, reducing personal income tax rates is one of the ways that you can do that. And it also has other positive effects by encouraging entrepreneurship, starting new businesses and, and things like that. So, you know, it has the potential to improve the standard of living for Canadians. Um, so we, we think this is kind of a winning idea for Canada moving forward.
Great discussion, Jake. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on. Appreciate your time. That is Jake Fuss, Senior Policy Analyst at the Fraser Institute. Yeah, um, let's cut taxes, but, you know, these programs cost billions, if not trillions of dollars. When you add it all up, I mean, with all that we've done. And over you know, the past to, year, particularly. To, yeah. And that's why I am uh, I am not a JT fan, and I don't mean Justin Timberlake, but Justin Trudeau. <laughs> you do like Justin but Timberlake. I love, I've seen him live. Yeah. You'd never miss that chance. Not the other one. But... The thing is, in the end, it's like, you know, how, how do we, who's going to pay for this? Yeah. Who's going to pay I mean, pay it for seems this? like a great idea. And aren't we all on board with lower taxes? Are you kidding me? Heck yeah. I, yeah. In the end, like, I mean, it's worth looking at. And we talked about for the first time, and this is interesting because we talked about balancing the budgets uh, pre-COVID and talked about maybe bumping up, well, in Alberta, a PST, but nationally raising the GST, which mm-hmm. is great. That 2%, and we spoke actually with, with Shea Ganim, I think we were talking with, about how he, you know, had crunched some numbers in the billions you can bring in with that 1% uh, increase, like or hundreds of billions it may have been. Great. But to take away, I don't know. I mean, it, it's on paper, and the Fraser Institute throws around ideas. Yeah. Do they make a... Do, do they, they go make, farther than that? Yeah. Chris F. sent in a text this morning. Income tax was supposed to be a temporary measure to help with the war effort. But as with all governments, more money coming in means more money in pockets. And we need this permanently. What are your thoughts? Do you think this is the route to go at this time? Lowering personal income taxes to create some jobs. 403-974-8255 is our text line. Oh, the winds were foul and the work was hard. Lever, Johnny Lever. From the Liverpool docks to the London Yard. And it's time for us to leave Oh, the sounds of one Alan Doyle. We know the voice, you know the face. You've seen the words and pages and, of course, seen his face on the big screen and the small screen alike. Is there anything that Alan Doyle can't do? I'm going to see if you no. can help me with some math problems for my team coming. Hey, uh, very excited uh, to have entertainer extraordinaire. I call him a Canadian icon, Alan Doyle, with us now. He's got a new book. It's called All Together Now, and basically it's a gathering in book form a virtual Newfoundland pub. Uh, which Alan regales uh, tales uh, drawn from his life and from the life of Canadians. It's what we need at this time. Good morning to you, Alan. Good morning from uh, snowy St. John's, Newfoundland. How are you oh, doing? Oh, we don't have snow in Calgary right now, so <laughs> got you beat there. Uh, but we want to talk about this because, yeah, now more than ever, we could use one of those gatherings almost like a kitchen party, and that's what you aim to do with this book. So tell us, uh, first of all, uh, how you've been spending your time over the past 13 months and how you came up with this idea. Well, you know, the, one of the last gigs I got to play was in, in your neck of the woods in last March, um, 13 or 14 months ago now, uh, when I put out a record called Rough Side Out, uh, and the tour was to have five three-week legs, uh, the first of which was in Western Canada, and we got to do that one. And then the rest of the four, of course, everything got shut down when we flew home on March 9th, and I've been basically home ever since. And so, you know, I spent much of the month of, of April just sort of panicking, like every other musician in the world, going like, when is this going to be over? Is this going to last as long as the summer? <laughs> that kind of thing. And, uh, <clears throat> and in the midst of it all, I was working on this other book for Random House. There's a longer kind of uh, a travel document, really. And Random House asked, you know, do you think it would be possible uh, for you to write a, a, st- a something that funny that we could put out in the fall because we, and I said, well, I could probably do like a book of sure. And I, this idea I'd always had of a book of my side of the stories I might tell at, in the pub uh, on a Friday night when all my friends are around and everyone's trying to 
one-up everyone else's stories, you know, and that's the best night at the pub when, you know, you, you barely you barely hear the end of someone else's story <laughs> when, when someone else starts right on top of the air. So you got to get in line and be quick. Alan, I'm curious, do you think being home for more than a year, your accent's gotten a little stronger? Your Newfoundland accent? <laughs> being around all the gonna, family and friends? I'm going to have to wait. I'm going to have to wait till I goes back to the mainland. <laughs> no, for sure. I but, love uh, it. Yeah. I want to ask you though. I was just you know flipping through the book and looking at some of the the, the stories or the titles of the stories and the chapters, and and you've got a story from Uncle Reg. You've got one from Ann Murray. So can you give us a you know a couple of little Cole's notes versions of of stories that you you introduced to us in the book? Oh, like you say, the, the stories run the gamut from, like, the Uncle Reg story, which is really, a, you know, about an uncle of mine that always seemed like a magical person to us, to, to me and my brother when we were little kids. And then, you know, to things that have happened, like, as a, a parent in my current life. And then, you know, there's the one about Anne Murray is, you know, the story of a fateful day in Toronto around the Grey Cup where it happened, you know, I won't give it all away, but, you know, I, as my friend Perry says, I had probably the most Canadian experience possible because in the same day I, I laid my hands on the Grey Cup and Anne Murray. <laughs> Alan Doyle, Grey Cup and Murray all together. It's hmm. The Canadian, we got to get some Tim Hortons in there and we'd be <laughs> set. Kidding. I'm wondering, Al, we've got to, uh, we have to take a quick break, but can you stay with us for two more minutes? We have another short segment after the break. Love you, yeah. Thanks so much. Oh, that'd be great. Okay, more with the one and only Alan Doyle coming your way in a couple minutes' time. More of his stories from all together now on the morning news. It's so late, it's early, but it feels just right. No rush, no hurry. Don't you turn on the lights? We recognize that voice. Uh, yes, the one and only Alan Doyle with us here on Mornings with Sue and Andy. All together now on Newfoundlanders Light Tales for a heavy time. And Alan, I'm wondering if you can break something down for us. Can you answer this question? Uh, they say they're the nicest people in the nation, the most accepting people, and they just happen to live on the east coast of Canada. Why is it that Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, and I'm not even sure if we say Labradorians, um, have this title? They might even be the friendliest people in, in the world. What is it about the region? Well, one of the jokes I like to make, people say, my God, people come over talking to me right away. There's some friendly. I go, no, we're nosy. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. You know, but, you know, in, in all honesty, like, I, I, I think there has to be something to the fact that we always had to look after each other out here on a rock in the middle of the ocean. Because, you know, like, especially in the, you know, the rural parts where I'm from, you know, you, in those small communities, you need every, you need each other. You know, there's no hospital in those places. And, you know, there's no, like, you know, so... You're constantly, uh, you, you know, you, you sort of make your own social net, right? And then there's that element. But then, of course, even in the city here in St. John's, I mean, you know, it's been a, you know, a, literally a port in a storm for hundreds of years. You know, people, you know, crossing the crossing the ocean in boats all stopped here when when there was a storm. You know, or or to, and then you know, nine eleven. Of course, you know, everyone knows about you know the, the tale of nine eleven and the kindness shown to people from around the world. It literally has become you know, the source of a Broadway hit musical, you know, and so, yeah, I think it's in the blood out here, and I, I think it's practical that, uh, 
that uh, that we look after each other, and and that coupled with the fact that we're <laughs> we're always delighted to see someone coming. <laughs> <laughs> Alan, we got a text from uh, Norm who said twelve of us spent a week vacationing in your hometown of Petty Harbor, and the people were so oh, yeah. nice and just fantastic. So I think we can all agree on that. Um, has it been a prolific pandemic for you? Have you you know aside from from writing books, are you writing tons of music? Can we expect to get a lot from Alan Doyle, potentially Great Big C, coming out of this thing? Well, yeah, I, I did the book, and then I did. Uh, I've been working on this musical for mm-hmm. Charlottetown Festival for 2022. Got a little, uh, you know, a workshop of that coming up, and then I produced a couple of records with friends over the time, and I'm about to start another one with a wonderful trio called the Anna Sisters here in St. John's, and then, and then, yeah, I have my own records going to come out in the, the one that this, you know, you, you played the shanty earlier, the Libra Johnny. That that record's called Back to the Harbor, and it comes out uh, in about a month uh, in May. And then, uh, and then I got a live record that's already in the can. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time just creating content and storing it, <laughs> hoping for the green light to go on, so we can get back on a real stage sometime. Yeah, the real stage thing. And if you've seen a performance from Great Big C or Alan Doyle on your own, I really get the sense that for you, the music is obviously the majority of it. But your interaction. What is it like trying to give the same type of performance you would in front of a crowd, but in front of Zoom? And what 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 do you miss when you don't have that crowd in front of you, Alan? Uh, everything. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I'm grateful for the you know the digital you know internet technology that's you know kept the lights on at the house basically uh, over the last year. And and honestly, it's been quite satisfying to connect uh, with people. And you know, and another way as well, like doing what we're doing now like on the radio. Uh, a little while ago, it wasn't possible for the TV world. And I did a whole promotional tour in Canada and the U.S. Uh, on all the television stations from my own camera in my own house, and it was uh, it was quite successful. So I'm grateful for all that. Uh, I just miss everything about playing live music. I miss the concerts. I miss the crowd. I miss the songs. I miss how physically it feels and how satisfying it is. And I miss the bus after the gig with the band hanging out and. and you know, waking up every morning in a new town. I miss everything about it, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, we miss you too and can't wait for things to get back to normal and have you and or the entire band come see us once again out in Calgary. We'll send everybody to alandoyle.ca, your website. Thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure to chat with you today. Oh, I look forward to coming back out that way and seeing yourselves and Deb and all the other awesome people in in that neck of the woods. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Alan. Appreciate it. That is Alan Doyle, singer, songwriter, best-selling author from, of course, the band Great Big C, his new book called All Together Now, a Newfoundlander's light tales for heavy times. Well, Brian Baumler is a household name for anyone who watches HGTV. We've watched him build homes for years, and for the last two seasons, we've watched he and his wife build their dream resort in the Caribbean. And when season two of Island of Brian ended, they had no idea what was coming their way. So how does a pandemic affect this grand adventure of theirs? To find out, we say good morning to Brian and Sarah Baumler. Good morning to you both. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Thank you for being here. Brian, we'll start with you. And uh, I bet you thought a hurricane was really the worst possible thing you'd ever have to encounter as you built this beautiful resort, didn't you? Yeah, we, uh, you know, that was certainly something in the back of our minds moving down there. I mean, this was this was such a uh, an experience on every level, you know, with, with family, with business, with the environment, with logistics, with, you know, a, a different culture, with everything. Um we really had a lot of things flying at us, and we actually two hurricanes. We had, you know, we narrowly missed um, 
you know, a, a Dorian, a, a major hurricane that caused, you know, a lot of uh, damage and, and death and destruction. Uh, and then we actually we were hit by Isaiah directly over us, which was which was a much much milder, but really, uh, yeah, there was there was a lot. Let's put it that way. A big experience. A big experience, and I'm wondering, you know, as far as the dynamic, you set out. This is a great idea. This is a resort top to bottom. You set out monkey wrench after monkey wrench. Were there times where you thought about? You know, just uh, retreating and saying, "Okay, I've had enough of this. Let's just change it up. We can we can grab a new project." Is this something you and Sarah talked about, or are you in it to win it? We, I think, we got to a point where you know we were in so deep that <laughs> uh, you know failure was not an option. You know, it's uh, it's like scuba diving. There's a point where you're down so deep that you just have to make it work. You you can't rock it to the surface. You know, you're you're in it. So uh, um, we. Yeah, there were certainly times we felt like doing that, but, you know. There were definitely times when I think we looked at one another and we knew we had to regroup. <laughs> what are that we makes doing? Sense. Yeah, <laughs> we had those, you know, what have we gotten ourselves into? Where do we go from here moments? But like everything, you just, that means it's time for you to take a little step back and gain a little perspective on, on where you're going and what direction you're headed. I don't think it was an ever, we have to give up. It was more, we need a chance to really reassess where we're going and, and what our priorities are right now. And I think as many families can attest to, that's been everyone's life for the last the last year easily. So very true that we don't have to be on an island to, to feel and relate to that for sure, Sarah. So h- how do you find the balance between design dreams and construction realities and all the other stuff that's been thrown your way? Well, I think in all honesty, we stopped trying to find a balance. We understand that different projects and different parts of a build or a renovation require your attention and care in different ways. You know, we have sort of, I guess for lack of a better word, found the sort of sweet spot where Brian and I can both really focus on what we love and our interests and and find that happy meeting point where he feels comfortable with what's behind the walls, with how things have been built, with the longevity of of the home or the renovation. And I can feel happy with the way it has come together and how it's shown and and the the sort of feel and the touch and the sense that the home has. And, you know, there's times when sort of Brian wins that battle and there's times when I win another battle, but we've really learned to understand, you know, this is his area of expertise. He's going to weigh in and he sort of says, you know, this is something that you really are, are passionate about you take the lead on this. We've, we've had to learn how to do that over the years, and that's really what makes the project continue and move forward. Yeah, so, so I'm wondering, you know, as far as, like, we just went through a kitchen rental at my house, and I'll tell you what, uh, we're lucky. I was telling Sue that no lawyers have knocked on the door yet <laughs> to hand me an envelope, so I'm happy with that. Uh, but but for you guys, uh, do, you, do you think that any couple uh, can get to where you are, or is this something that you, you both have to be passionate about? Because I would think that in any relationship, relationship, somebody's more passionate about the project than the other one. Yeah, you definitely both have to have, uh, you know, interest in what you're doing. You You both have to enjoy uh, a little bit of, of hardship and pain, and, and uh, uh, you both have to be a little crazy. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think you know, ultimately you have to realize that, that uh, you know, whether it's a, a renovation or, uh, you know, a, a blown tire on your car or an issue with the kids at school, um, you know, anything can be a catalyst to an argument, a fight, and it, it's not... You know, generally on home renovations, you know, when when Sarah and I have a disagreement about something, 
it's generally not about the tile or the paint color or the furniture. It's it's about something completely unrelated that just manifests itself in that. So I think you know you realize that you make sure in a in a big reno where there are a lot of you know potential catalysts for uh, for for arguments that you take time to back up and take some time away from it, not discuss it, and mm-hmm. and just, just, you know, get a breath of fresh air. Pick your battles, right? Uh, let's talk about a, yeah. a, a, a renovation itself or any kind of work that you might be doing at home. So you, you guys have addressed the, the relationship part of it, but what about the structural and the rest of it that comes, Brian? You know, what do you look for when you're starting or thinking about doing any kind of renovation around the house? Well, I think you really have to decide, you know, uh, and I mean, I, I spent years doing this with Leave It to Brian. You have to walk through your home and decide what do I want and what do I need uh, and what makes, you know, what, how is the, what's, what's the path of least resistance to getting the things I want uh, while still doing the things we need. And, and for me, it's, it's looking at, at the key things of your home first. Is it safe? Uh, is it healthy? Uh, is it efficient? And, and, you know, finally, unfortunately, you know, down the road is, does it, does it look nice? Uh, and, and not everybody agrees with that. You, you want to be able to do both at once, but you, you certainly have to, uh, in, in my view, focus on things that will reduce the operating costs of your, your home long-term, reduce the maintenance costs, you know, make sure it's healthy, make sure it's efficient, and that you're, you're putting money into a real asset uh, that that is paying you back rather than just being an expense that, that uh, you know is over designed or, or looks nice, and there's obviously there's a balance there, and that's 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 where Sarah comes in. So I don't just build really uh, <laughs> efficient, strong things that that look terrible. She's a very patient <laughs> woman, Brian. Really, really is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we're, well, we gotta. One day we're gonna write a tell-all. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. And there you have That'll it. That'll be awesome. Totally edit. That's a, that's a whole different show yeah. as well. Uh, but, you know, uh, very much looking forward yeah. to seeing that balance and seeing the progress as we check out season two of Island of Brian. Uh, we've got a, is it season three? Yep. Oh, yeah, season three. Season, season three. three already. I've taken a season away from you. How about that? You can have a fresh start. Don't make them go back in time. <laughs> season uh, season three. I think uh, everybody's lost the season well, this year. Yeah. Well, and there's the thing, right? So this might be the perfect escape. It's like checking in with old friends when you're watching season three, which kicks off Sunday, this Sunday, April 18th at 8 o'clock Calgary time uh, only. Right. You know, on uh, you can check out, uh, by the way, on HGTV, but you can watch the back episodes on the Global TV app. Thank you so much, Brian and Sarah. Hey, thanks for having us, guys. Enjoy the show. Good stuff. That is uh, Brian and Sarah Baumler. And, of course, the big show on the Sunday night at 8 o'clock. Yeah, last two seasons is coming together. Now we're going to see the progress as we move into season three. They just seem like a fun couple, don't they? They really do. And going to their resort now just sounds quite We didn't get an invite. Yeah, weird.